there are a few people in the congregation today who are having a birthday today. If you're having a birthday, stick up your hand. Don't be shy. Grant, stick up your hand. So there's a few, actually, there's quite a few. Um, my son, Harvey, as well. Happy birthday, Harvey. Grant and Belinda, is there anyone else who's having a birthday today? Okay. But do, do wish them a happy birthday afterwards uh, over a cup of hot chocolate. Um, but Grant, especially to you, thank you. Grant is our senior minister. I met him. Uh, thanks for leading us as a congregation and as a, as a staff team. We thank God for you. Uh, we're going to get to know Andrew, Andrew Satch, all the way from the UK. So, Andrew, if you want to join me up here, you can... Good evening, church. Can you please turn with me to Genesis 11, verse 1 to 9, and then also afterwards, Acts 2, verse 1 to 11. Right. I'll be reading from the NIV. This is God's word. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come, let us build for ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said, If as one people speaking the same language they have, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. So the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. And now, Acts 2, verse 9 to 11. 1 to 11. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to the rest to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews, from every nation under heaven. When they heard the sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, because each one heard them speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these men who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, Residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? 
Some, however, made fun of them and said, they've had too much wine. Thank you. So um, the Tower of Babel, I got a free choice of what to speak on today, and I thought I'd, I rather like this little story. And maybe for lots of us, it is a children's story. I mean, it's in the children's Bibles. Uh, it's a classic Sunday school lesson. Maybe you remember it when you were a child. In fact, we did it recently at our church for a weekend away for the children's work. It makes a fantastic weekend. I mean, you can imagine the activities just write themselves. I mean, Jenga, um, that, there's, um, that's the obvious one. Oh, sorry, this is a, just a greeting. I'm going to try and give indications for the slides, but this is hello from my church back home and from the Cornhill training course where I teach. They both are basically supporting me being here, so thanks to them and hello from them. But um, the Tower of Babel, it's a children's talk, and uh, you do the activity um, Jenga. Uh, you do a song. One of my friends wrote a song. There once was a people who wanted power, so they said, let's build a tower but only God deserves the glory, so he came down and stopped them. Blah, blah is all they heard. Blah, blah is all they heard. Blah, blah is all they heard. That's how God stopped their building. And, you know, it's a fantastic children's weekend. And maybe for us it's, it's just a children's story. And I want to um, explore with you tonight how it's so much more than that. It, it's fascinating from almost every academic discipline. And in particular, it's going to tell us a lot about our God and what he is like, and how he's involved in the world today. So um, it's going to be exciting, I think. I, I love this passage, and the more I've looked at it, the more I've learned from it. Um, so it's a passage that's inspired art, and here is uh, two paintings by, anyone know? Art test. I know you're mostly engineers, but anyone tuned into religious arts? Anyone know who this is? This is Peter Bruegel, the elder He's a Flemish painter, which I think means he speaks Afrikaans, although he was in Belgium and um, Holland. And he did it twice in the same year. I think he liked it so much. In 1563, he painted these two different versions of the Tower of Babel. Actually, the one on the left is twice the size, quite a huge one. The one on the right is a, a tiny little painting. But they're, they're kind of similar, um, but a little bit different. Um, I love this picture. And it's quite a political picture. It makes a bit of a political statement. Because does this building remind you of any other famous building? Yes, at the back. The European Union headquarters. Oh, that's true, actually. It does look a bit like that, doesn't it? In Brussels. I hadn't thought of that. But Peter Bruegel was painting in 1563. So he probably wasn't... <laughs> making that particular statement, although you might be right. Anyone know an ancient building that looks like this? The Col Someone at the front says the Colosseum. Exactly, it's like the Colosseum, because he was um, painting it as a critique of Rome, which was considered to be uh, a symbol for all the hubris of human attempts at, at power and, and riches, but in a godless way. Also, at the time of Bruegel, um, there was a and the Protestant Reformation over and against the, the Catholic Church, and maybe there's a statement here about the Romish Church. Um, it's it's Rome-like in his picture. But, of course, that's not the first generation to, or the last generation, to make political statements out of the Tower of Babel. Everyone wants the highest tower, don't they? Architecturally, this is the thing. So in London, um, this is the one. If we can have the next slide. The, the, I call it the Tower of Babel. It's called the Shard, but it is basically the Tower of Babel, isn't it? Can we build a tower 
that's a little bit taller than your tower. That's always the aim. And, and often they do it kind of by cheating. I think it's not the, really the highest tower, it, unless you count the bit of glass on the top of it that you can't actually live in. Sometimes people put a radio mast on their tower to make it just slightly taller than the other one. And then the race is on around the world to make another one a little bit taller. I think this is, might be the highest tower in Europe, is it, at the moment? But I'm sure someone is racing to build the next highest tower. And it's all about, look how impressive we are. Look how our engineers are better than your engineers. Look how we're the greatest nation that ever was. The Tower of Babel stands for human pride. I was a little bit alarmed when arriving in South Africa two days ago to be taken to this place. You have your own version of it. Um, here it is on the slide. It's actually not a very high tower, but I think there's a high mountain behind it, which might be responsible. So um, it, it looks like quite a simple story. Here are humans showing off their engineering, trying to make a, a name for themselves. If you just look down at verse 3, they said to each other, Come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They use brick instead of stone and bitumen instead of mortar. This is an advance in building engineering technology. Stone is, takes ages to cut. Bricks, you just make some mud and wait for it to dry in the sun. You can make a lot more bricks than you can make stones. You can build a tower much more quickly. And they do it to make a name for themselves. And it's kind of succeeded because their tower is famous um, thousands of years later. Look how impressive we are. But God squishes human pride. Actually, this story, though, has been the cause of some rogue theology. And if we can have the next slide... Um, there's a, a movement called the Openness of God, or Open Theism Movement. I've put a, a skull and crossbones so that you don't buy this book. It's a, it's a terrible book. But it basically says that the future is open because God doesn't know what's going to happen. And this is meant to be this great advance in uh, Christian ideology. Wouldn't it be great if you could make decisions and even God didn't know what decisions you were going to make? Like it's genuinely an open question what the future will be. It's actually an awful thing. Uh, the Bible tells us that God plans the future. He knows the future. He's fixed the future. That's the one thing that gives Christians confidence when the world's going crazy. God's got the future under control. But open theism says, no, no, God doesn't know what's going to happen. And one of their proof texts is actually from this story. Chapter 11, verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower the people were building. You see, they say God doesn't actually know what's going on on earth. He has to come and investigate. I think that completely misunderstands the point of this verse. This verse doesn't mean that God doesn't know what's going on. It's rather kind of trying to present it in a human way so that we can identify with it. And the Bible quite often does this. It, it talks about God's arm. God's going to redeem Israel with an outstretched arm. But God doesn't actually have an arm. I mean, the Lord Jesus had an arm when he was incarnate, but God is spirit. He doesn't have an arm. Well, it talks about God's eyes being too pure to look on evil, but God doesn't actually have eyes. He's kind of putting things in a human way so that we understand it. And I think the point of it is this. The Lord came down to see. It's a bit like this. What is that?
Oh, it's a little tower. <laughs> Bless them. It's a story of humans being so chuffed with themselves at what they've managed to do in defying God, in exalting themselves, and God coming down and squishing them. It's a theme in the Bible often, actually. We've got the next slide, a whole load of verses. that All over the Bible, it tells us that God hates people who are full of themselves, who are proud. I, I hate people who are full of themselves as well, probably because I'm full of myself, and it becomes a kind of competition when we're in the same room. But pride is ugly, isn't it? And God hates it. Isaiah says, The Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and the lofty, for all that's exalted, all that's lifted up. They will be humbled. Uh, Mary, in her song, The Magnificat, says that the Lord has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He's brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. Uh, the Lord Jesus himself at a particularly awkward dinner party. Jesus was always quite awkward at dinner parties, wasn't he? He called people out and said the kind of awkward things that everyone wished he didn't say. Well, at one dinner party where everyone's sort of pushing in to try and get the best seats, Jesus tells a little story about how you shouldn't do that. And then says, all who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. And then it comes in James and in 1 Peter in this pithy little phrase, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That, that's the lesson, maybe, of the Tower of Babel. They tried to build this big tower. God confuses them so they can't even understand each other. And then they all go home. And in fact, it's written, we, we talked about engineering, we talked about art. Let's talk about um, poetry and literature. It's written in actually an incredible way. So um, here's a little pattern of the, the verses, if you, can, if you can see it. The whole thing is, is written symmetrically. So at the beginning, the whole world had one language. But at the end, the Lord confused the language of the whole world. The first phrase and the last phrase, they match each other. And you go in a layer, and it talks about a place called Shinar, where they settled. And at the end, you go in one, and it talks about a place called Babel, where they settled, the name of the place. Then, come let us make, they say, let's make bricks. Come let us confuse, says God. They want to build a city with a tower. Well, God comes to see a city with a tower that they're building. And right in the middle of the whole thing is the hinge the Lord came down. The whole thing is, is beautifully crafted around this central verse. Uh, there's a guy, guy called J.P. Fockelman. He was a German Old Testament scholar who didn't really have a very high view of the Bible at all. He thought the Bible was just a human book sort of that had evolved over time. Uh, you know how Darwinism gripped bi biology and people thought we can now explain the, the existence of, of human beings without a need for a creator thanks to Darwin. And then Darwinism also began to grip literature. So everything evolved by chance. We're here by chance, uh, says the Darwinist, and literature is here by chance, and religion is here by chance. Uh, these primitive early, Christian, uh, early theological ideas gradually evolved into more sophisticated ideas, and the Bible was put together in a whole sort of mishmash kind of way. That's what um, J.P. Fockelman believes until he started studying carefully the book of Genesis, I mean, in particular, the story of the Tower of Babel. And as he looked at the way it was arranged in a literary way, he realized this was a work of a creative 
genius. I don't know whether he ever came to faith in Jesus Christ, but he certainly came to realize that the Bible had not just evolved randomly, but had been written incredibly carefully. And as well as finding this kind of nice symmetrical hinge where everything turns on the middle, he then notices that as you go from the, the top half to the second half of the, of the hinge, everything flips around. So um, in Hebrew, um, verbs are based on three letters. And the verb for come, let us make, the letters L-B-N, is actually the very same word but turned around the opposite way round as the letters to come, let us confuse, N-B-L. And he thought, you know, the, the guy writing this is just showing off. You know, this is incredible poetry. This is the work of a, of a literary genius. We would say it's the work of the Holy Spirit of God. But he makes the same point. They try to climb high, and God squishes them down. Uh, they want to make bricks. He wants to make confusion, and they all go home. Well, um, that's as far as I got with the Tower of Babel. Until we started working through the whole book of Genesis in our church, and I started reading Genesis chapter by chapter, and I, I read chapter 10. I wonder if you, in your Bible you could just turn back to chapter 10. And I bet this is a chapter that you've not heard a sermon on before. Probably. Who knows? But I don't think there's many sermons on chapter 10. Um, a, a sermon about a family tree. But as I started looking at the family, in fact, I tried to draw the family tree um, on Friday night. And I hope I got it right. But I think this is what chapter 10 looks like if you work out who is father and father. It's basically Noah's three sons, Japheth, Ham, and Shem. And then the different branches of Japheth's family, Gomer, Javan and then all the others, and then you get into Gomer's family and Javan's family, and then you get Ham's four sons, Cush, Egypt, Put, and Canaan, and all of their children, and then you get Shem's, three, get Shem's six sons, Aram, Arpashad, Elam, Aphel, and Lud, and then their children, and then Arpashad, you follow all the way down through Shelah, Eber, Peleg, Joktan, and then his sons. So you get from Jerah's great, 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 great grandchildren on the family tree. And you might think, okay, I'm still not that interested. Why are we looking at this family tree? But as you look at it more closely, there's a couple of quite weird things about this family tree for people studying the Tower of Babel. So, for example, when you take Nimrod, who's right down the bottom of the family tree, you, you read this. The first centers of Nimrod's kingdom included Babel in Shinar. From that land, he went on to Assyria, where he built Nineveh. So early on in, in Nimrod's life, we get Babel, and then we discover about his um, nephews, Sheba and Dedan. Here's another interesting detail. When we look at um, Peleg, we read that one of them was called Peleg. Well, this is one of Shem's grandsons. One of them was named Peleg because in his time, the earth was divided because the word Peleg in Hebrew means divided. Now, this is really interesting to me because this sounds like Tower of Babel things. There's a guy who went to a place called China, built a city called Babel, and the earth was divided. But this happens a chapter before. I thought, that's a bit weird. And then um, something even more strange happens. There's a little summary statement at the end of each branch of the genealogy, and it goes like this. We have it on the slide. We read of a Japheth's family, and we read from these, the maritime people spread out into their territories, by their clans, within their own nations, each with his own language. What? 
Because in the Tower of Babel, they all speak the same language at the start. But it turns out in chapter 10, Japheth's family are spreading out and all speaking different languages. Then we see the same with Ham's family. These are the sons of Ham by their clans and their languages in their territories and nations. And the same with Shem's family. These are the sons of Shem by their clans, their languages in their territories and their nations. People are speaking loads of different languages in chapter 10. And then you get the Tower of Babel. What on earth is going on? This is a real, real puzzle for me. And then I realized it was just, it's just Netflix, isn't it? Um, it's pretty obvious how it works. It's just a flashback. Chapter 11 is the flashback of how we got to chapter 10. People speaking all sorts of different things, and then we find out how. And, you know, this is a, a great technique of good storytelling, and it's, it's in modern streaming and box sets, and why shouldn't God have done it first? Okay, so what's the point of giving us the genealogy and then telling us how it got there in the Tower of Babel? Bear, bear with me. This is a very interesting genealogy. In fact, it's a very different shape of genealogy to the one in chapter 5. I know for some people you're thinking this is impossibly nerdy. I can't believe I'm at church talking about different shapes of genealogies. But bear with me. This is what the chapter 5 genealogy looks like. If it's a family tree, it is a very, very skinny family tree. So this is the family line of um, Adam, and he fathered Seth. And he had other sons and daughters, we're told, but we don't go into those. And then Seth had lived 105 years. He became the father of Enosh. And Seth had other sons and daughters, but we're not interested in those. And um, Enosh was the father of Kenan, he had other sons and daughters. It just follows the line of Adam, because the point of this genealogy is to show us that in the godly line of Seth comes Noah. It's a bit like Jesus' genealogy, isn't it? In the beginning of Matthew, at the beginning of the New Testament, it tells you that Jesus descended from King David, um, uh, who is descended from Abraham. But it doesn't go into all the branches. Can you imagine how long the genealogy would be if it did all of Jesus' sort of 10th cousins, three times removed, etc. It's just a a very narrow genealogy. But the chapter 10 genealogy isn't like that. Can we have it again? It's like this shape. It's a a kind of bushy, spreading out, proper kind of tree shape. What is the Holy Spirit trying to tell us by showing us this tree? I think he's trying to show us, look at how all the nations of the earth spread out. Look at where all the different tribes came from, all the different nations came from. Look at where all the different languages came from. And if you've been reading Genesis, starting from the beginning, and you get to this point, I think you're supposed to think, hooray, this is really good news. Because what God had said right at the beginning when he made Adam and Eve, not by random chance, but by God breathing life into them, he said to them, be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth. He wanted people bearing his image all over the world, people in the southern tip of Africa, as well as on the zero-degree longitude line in colder Greenwich. God wanted image bearers everywhere. And when you come to the Tower of Babel, and we read it a bit more closely with that in mind, we discover that's what the people in China did not want. 
Just look at the Tower of Babel again. Before it comes up on the... Can you take, take the slide away? Before it comes up, just look down yourself and see what the story is actually about that we miss. Well, certainly I missed the, the first 10, 20 times I read it, probably. What is the story actually about? Just, just look down the verses again. See if you can find it before I tell you. Why don't you look particularly at verse 4? Why don't you look at verse 8 or verse 9? Okay, let's have it on the screen. They said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens to make a name for ourselves. There there is a pride element in it, surely. But then they said, otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. And we don't want that. We don't want to have to spread out into new territories. We like it here in China. Let's just make our home here and make a really, really big city with a really big town. We can all live in it. But that isn't what God wanted. God told human beings to spread out and fill the whole of the earth. And they refused to do that. They refused to obey. But by the end of the the story, God's confused their languages. And we read in verse 8, So the Lord scattered them over all the earth. And then in case you missed it, the author tells you again, because this is actually the most important punchline of the whole story. Verse 9 From there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. You see, the the point of the story is that humans resist God's plan, but God presses ahead with his plan. Nothing can stop what God wants to happen. Um, uh, That's kind of ironic that the open theism people use the Tower of Babel story to make their theology, when in fact it argues the exact opposite of that. God is always one step ahead. He will have the the future that he's planned for the earth. And so chapter 11 is the surprising way that God brings about chapter 10. Let's just step back and think about this for a moment because it's quite a profound thing. God uses an evil thing, a pride thing, a human's trying to show how brilliant they are, thing to bring about the end that he always wanted i'm not i'm not saying that building a tower and being proud is good i mean it's a it's a bad thing to do but i am saying that god was one step ahead and he turned it around and he brought about the outcome that he always planned because in chapter 10 when you read that here are the sons of um of japheth each with his own language you go oh great you know, they fill the earth and they even speak different things. Some people speak Khorza, some people speak Afrikaans, some people speak English, some people speak Mandarin, some people speak Cantonese. They are fantastic, great. Long before you know about the Tower of Babel, and, and look at all these different nations that are people, oh, fantastic, all the, the sons of Ham spread out like that, oh, that's good, that's what God wanted. And then you read about how it came about, And humans had an evil purpose, a a proud purpose. And then God thought, this is the opportunity that I've planned to confuse the languages and to spread them out, and then I'll get what I always wanted. 
It's kind of the opposite of open theism. You know, who knows what's going to happen in the future? Um, It's like absolutely certain future theism. I don't know what you want to call it. Closed theism sounds bad, doesn't it? Because open is a nice adjective. But maybe secure theism, we could call it. Uh, Providential theism. Uh, The kind of universe that isn't spiraling out of control, as I guess so many non-Christians think it is. You know, if we're here by chance, if the human species is just a lucky role in the cosmic lottery, um, if all our personalities are here by chance because we've just evolved from amoeba or from single-celled ancestors, um, if religion's all just made up, well, what's the hope for the future? It's just spiraling out of control randomly. Everything that happens to us is random. Who knows whether Putin will go even more mad and press the button and, and the nuclear missiles will fly and we'll all be vaporized. Maybe. Unless there's a God who is so many steps ahead that he even uses evil things to bring about the things he wanted, the things that he planned. Uh, you just occasionally get to see that, don't you, where, where you look back and think, oh, I see, <laughs> I get it. At the time, there would have been people asking God, why did you allow this to happen? But I get it. I see now what God was up to. One example is at the end of the book of Genesis. When Joseph is sold into slavery because his brothers were envious of his dressing gown. It's kind of a typical story of squabbling between siblings. But it's a bit nastier than that. They sell him off to, to be a slave and But it turns out that God's plan was that he would go to Egypt where he would become friends with the Pharaoh and interpret some dreams accurately, get promoted in the civil service, become the prime minister of of Egypt, be able to uh, negotiate plans for a future famine to store enormous amounts of food so that when God's people found themselves starving from the famine, there was enough food to go round. Oh, I get it. At the time, Joseph would have been saying, why did you allow this, Lord? my brothers to sell me into slavery. But then you go, I see. God was one step ahead or 10 steps ahead. You intended to harm me, he says at the end of the book of Genesis. But God intended it for good to accomplish what's now being done, the saving of many lives. I think of the way that China began to open up to Western missionaries. First Hudson Taylor and then a whole load of others in the China Inland Mission, and then came the Cultural Revolution with Chairman Mao, and all of the missionaries were expelled from China. God's, what, what's going on? But what are you doing? Why, why would you stop the, the spread of your gospel in China like this? All the missionaries had to leave. And now we think, oh, I, I get it. I see what God was up to, with hindsight. Oh, I see that the church is going to go indigenous so that secret Chinese churches courageously will, will share the gospel with other people. And, and the, the, the gospel would spread at an incredible rate. When I was at university, which I know is quite a lot, long time longer ago than most of you at university, sort of half of my life ago, but there was one of my friends uh, was doing her final year. She was studying Chinese studies at Cambridge, and her final year dissertation was on the secret church in China. And at that time, the senior academics in the Department of Chinese who were supervising her said, don't be ridiculous, Katie. There's no evidence that it actually exists. That was in 2005. 
No, that's not even true. I'm making myself younger than I am. That was in 1995. There we are. I've just saved a cool decade off my age there. And, of course, now we know that there's just millions and millions of Christians in China. And it looked like a disaster. Ah, I get it, Lord. I see what you're doing. Who knows why Ukraine? Who knows why the problems facing Africa? I don't know. But God's several steps ahead. Um, God, who providentially, securely plots the future so that even what looks bad, some people defying him, we're going to build a, a tower, make a name for ourselves, and we won't be scattered. Oh, yeah, you will. And then all these languages. Now, here's the thing. Does this mean, then, that confusing the languages at Babel is actually a good thing? That's what I'm kind of suggesting. Surely it's a bad thing because, you know, we can't understand each other. We need translators and that kind of thing. And another I thought, oh, well, there's another place in the Bible that the Tower of Babel and confused languages happens. And it gets reversed. And I was thinking of that passage we had in our second reading from Acts. At the, at the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes to enable the church to start to spread the gospel... That's like an undoing of Babel, isn't it? Because at Babel, they all speak one language, and then they're confused, so they speak many languages. But at Pentecost, they all speak many languages, and then it gets reversed, and they all speak one language. Isn't that right? No, it turns out it's not right. I hadn't read Acts chapter 2 correctly. They don't all speak one language. Have you ever had those arguments of, you know, what language we all speak in heaven? And some people are absolutely sure that it will be Afrikaans and... Of course, I'm absolutely sure that it will be English, and um, other people are absolutely sure it will be Mandarin. Probably by sheer numbers, it ought to be Mandarin. But um, in fact, it's going to be all of those languages. Because at Pentecost, God does not reverse Babel. He overcomes the language barrier. Supernaturally, everyone's able to understand. They go, but they say to each other, how is it that each one heard in their own language the wonders of God. How is it that each of us hears them in our own native language? It says it a third time. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. They're, it's not like everybody suddenly speaks English. They still speak Mesopotamian, Cappadocian, Pontian, Phrygian, Pamphylian, Egyptian, um, Libyan. Latin, I suppose, for the people in Rome. They still speak those languages, but they all understand. But So God overcomes the language barrier, but he preserves the variety. Because he didn't want everyone living in one city in Babylon in a really, really high tower. He wanted people spreading out into clans, tribes, peoples, languages, in a glorious variety and yet with the language barrier overcome so that the gospel could reach all of those people. I put a, a, a picture up of the, the United Nations. Um, and in the United Nations, they don't all speak one language, do they? They just all have earpieces that they can understand. And Pentecost is actually like that, except without the earpieces. The Holy Spirit does it um, miraculously. So here's the thing. Babel, although it was a bad thing, it was a step forwards in God's plan. God, who specializes in turning human evil for his good to bring about a church which is 
so mixed. It's one of the beautiful things for me about meeting Christians in South Africa, you know, a country that's been so divided, is to see the gospel bringing people together from all sorts of tribes and languages. And people here who speak out languages that I don't know, but brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the things I love about um, living in London is just people from all over the world speaking all kinds of different things. I had a dinner party the other day at my house, and I think I had eight people there, and there were six different nationalities. And I wasn't even deliberately trying to make it varied. That was just the cross-section of the, of the church. So there is this division overcoming unity, but still with the variety still with all the different peoples. And of course, that's something gloriously that continues into the, into the future. Even in the, the new creation, gathered around the throne, are people from every nation, from all tribes and peoples, all speaking English. It doesn't say that, does it? From every nation, all tribes and peoples, and languages. The languages that originated in Genesis chapter 11 when God did a really beautiful thing out of a really horrible thing. When he painfully scattered people in order that he might have people all over the world. Let, let me say, it brings me a lot of comfort. I, I shared earlier about the problems our church is facing. We lost a venue, can't find one. Tried 27 different places in the last two weeks, and all of them said no. What are we going to do? Oh, God's still on the throne, though. He's still lots of steps ahead. Um, we're going to have to move to a new area of London, half of us, to, to fit. Oh, God intends that. Scatters the church. One, one of the trustees commented, maybe it's our own little Acts 8 moment when God throws them out of Jerusalem and spread. They don't want to go. They, they kind of like living together. But no, you've got to go and fill the world with the gospel. And so they have to go. And God's several steps ahead because he's sovereign. And then it makes me think of the, the ultimate evil that God was several steps ahead and turned for the ultimate good. The crucifixion of the Lord Jesus. And even as the Son of God was put to death, God had planned to bring about the salvation of the world. A people from every nation, all tribes and peoples and languages gathered around the throne saying salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Praise him. Thank you, Andrew. Um.